The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investsmart.com.au. Welcome to Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Senior Portfolio Manager, Nathan Bell, and today I have a surprise guest, Gaurav Sodi. Welcome, Gaurav. Hey, Nathan. Nice to be with you. Gaurav, your official title at Intelligent Investor, because I don't want to screw it up. These days, it's, what is it? It's Deputy Head of Research at Intelligent Investor. No, of InvestSmart, actually, I think. Actually, I don't know. No, I think, I think we're Intelligent Investor now. Oh, okay, right. We're going with that. There we go. Uh, most importantly, though, you're an mm. expert in resources, and we've had a lot of questions from our listeners recently about resources-related stocks. Right. And I thought, rather than listen to me with limited knowledge mm. and limited interest, I'll get someone on who's been covering this sector for a long time. And, mm. and I think probably more interesting uh, to me at the moment is a lot of uh, well, companies like West Farmers are actually making more acquisitions in the resources sector. We've also got a whole bunch of resources companies that are returning cash. They've found religion. Mm. They've been some of our best performers recently, and I think a lot of people are asking how long that's going to continue for. But before we get into that, another stock just by pure randomness, <laughs> yes. it happens to be one that you're the expert in also, mm. is TPG. And last night or yesterday afternoon, by pure mistake, I don't know how this happened, but someone at low level at the business has mm. decided to publish the ACCC's uh, determination. You mean someone formerly with the business? <laughs> <laughs> and so mm. the merger between TPG and Telecom by the ACCC or Rod Sims has been knocked back. So mm. firstly, give us an update on the situation and then we'll talk about what you think the way forward is. There had been rumours of this percolating for some time. So a lot of newspaper columnists were talking about um, their sources inside TPG and Vodafone were concerned because apparently the ACCC was asking for bits of information that suggested that they were determined to knock back the merger. Now, in terms of sheer logic, the merger makes absolute sense. And I was actually convinced it was going to go through, and I think that was the consensus view. There is a monopolist in the mobile market, and I think it's fair to claim it to be uncompetitive at times because there is one company that has a 50% market share that makes the highest operating margins in the world um, and that has absolute network dominance. And that monopolist is Telstra. And the the irony of all this is that the ACCC's mission is to serve the consumer, but instead they've actually done the reverse of that. They've, they've blocked the best competitor to emerge to challenge the Telstra monopoly in years. And now it looks as though, you know, unless this decision is overruled, um, the VHA and TPG merger won't go through. Um, and that would have been a great opportunity to challenge Telstra. I think it would have eventually dethroned Telstra as the, as the monopolist. They would have still been market leader, but they would not have captured the lion's share of, of industry profits the way they do now. It is unprecedented, really, to have three competitors um, in an, a near commodity business and to have one of those competitors so far ahead in terms of return on capital and, and margins. And is this why you, and judging by the headlines in the papers this morning, uh, generally think that this is going to be turned over in court from here? The ACCC isn't an organisation that can work with a great deal of discretion. They're bound by a really tight set of rules and a tight set of tests, and they have to prove those tests, they have to follow those rules when they reach a judgment. And there's lots of avenues for, well, well there's an important avenue for appeal um, for companies that feel as though those tests have not been followed 
judiciously. And it's happened in the past, in the recent past, in fact. Um, there have been a whole series of takeovers in the energy space that were blocked by the ACCC and were subsequently let through by the merger. I bring up those examples because they remind me a lot of the telco space because at the time the ACCC blocked them, there was a lot of political scrutiny over energy prices and energy competition. And I think the ACCC then was acting um, as a showpiece to their political masters, and I think that's exactly what's happening now. I, I think that you know the Royal Commission has shown up regulators across the board, and the ACCC is standing up trying to stake its claim in the ground as being a consumer advocate, and it's actually acting in the in the direct op opposition interests of consumers. And what's the likely timeline for this? So within hours, VHA was released a statement saying they're going to appeal, they go to the federal court. TPG and VHA have extended their merger deadline until 2020. So it looks as though they're expecting within 12 months this appeal and decision to be released. It's probably going to take less than that, I reckon. We could have something towards the end of the year or early next year, but they're giving each other about 12 months to get this whole process done. I think they have a very good case. Um, I'd be quite surprised if the, the uh, federal court upheld this decision. It makes very little sense to me. I think it makes very little sense to anyone who takes a look at this industry. Okay. Uh, another somewhat complicated company, well, actually, this, this company is much more complicated, I think, is Origin Energy. So this is a question from one of our listeners. Mm. Origin Energy is much more than an energy retailer. Are you able to talk about how you value Origin, the political risks in the energy sector, and the LNG opportunity that may be present in Origin? And I know for Intelligent Investor members, yesterday you published uh, the case for splitting the company up, mm. um, but perhaps just a little bit of the broad background of Origin first, because I just find it a very complicated business with a lot of moving parts. Yeah, origin, the, or, the origins of Origin <laughs> really come um, in, the, in the 80s when um, Australia was one of the first markets in the world to deregulate energy markets. Now, energy used to be, it used to be that the government owned um, a a bit of coal or a bit of um, raw resource. The government owned a generator and the government owned the power poles, the power lines that distributed electricity. And um, so there was a one owner of the entire stage of the electricity process and we, were, we ended up with quite an inefficient system that was low on volumes and high on price. And um, so Australia was one of the leaders in the market to deregulate that system. So they separated the generation side from the, from the distribution side. And that meant that there were companies that um, generated electricity that owned generators and there were companies that um, sold electricity and there were companies that sort of owned the poles and wires to distribute electricity. So Origin operates and it always has operated in the generation side. So it's owned generators and it's operate on the retail side, so it sells electricity to final retailers, uh, to final consumers, but it doesn't own the poles and wires. They are a regulated asset owned by a couple of public and private companies, and they're well and carefully regulated by the AER, the Australian Energy Regulator. So Origin's business is really to sell energy to its um, customers, but it has to buy that energy or produce that energy. So the Australia has a well-developed energy market, and so it can go into that market and pu purchase energy, um, and it does that, but it also generates its own energy as well. So in the quest to shore up its energy resources so it has enough to generate, they built up an enormous um, gas position in Queensland. And Grant King, in an act of, um, I think, 
uh, quite deliberate genius, started to think about ways to, to monetize all those gas resources. And um, he decided to start an LNG project on the side. And that's how Origin, you know, an energy retailer, got into the LNG business. It's been quite a successful move for them. Okay, so there's a, a lot going on. I'm not even sure where to start at the moment, but maybe you can start with where the LNG business is at today. Yeah, so the LNG business has grown into a colossal business, really. It's it's probably a $20, $25 billion cost base. Um, they own about a third, 37% stake of the entire LNG project. It's a joint venture between them, um, ConocoPhillips, and a couple of um, Asian customers. So Origin has poured a lot of capital into this, probably six, seven billion dollars of capital. Um, but the LNG is different to say a Woodside or oil search because it comes from coal seam gas. So with a conventional um, gas field, you sort of drill five or six holes and you sit back, and all those um, wells uh, suck up gas, and you, you you pump that pump that gas into an LNG plant and you export it. With coal seam gas, you have to continuously drill. Instead of five or six wells, you end up drilling thousands, tens of thousands of wells. So it's a high capital intensity business and the returns are necessarily lower than conventional LNG. So although Origin's LNG project is profitable and it earns so far, I think, okay returns on capital, this is by no means an outstanding LNG business. This is not a Woodside. Um, and People who compare the two, I, I think, don't quite get the economics, um, and they're quite different. Um, but look, it's, it's been being run reasonably well. They've got 20-year um, signed-up contracts. Um, they sell everything they produce, and it's ramping up, and it looks like Origin should get about a billion dollars a year in free cash flow from its LNG business. And um, I think that represents a pretty decent return on capital. I think it's okay. It's nothing outstanding. It's not as though it's Woodside who generates sensational returns on capital. I think it's okay. And then you've also got the retail side. And this is where you've got a lot of problems emerging for Origin because retail has, be has changed from being this really nice, cosy oligopoly. The top three energy retailers have long accounted for about 80% of, of, of market share. They've had a long um, history of very high margins, great cash generation, and low churn rates. It's been a very cosy oligopoly. But as energy prices have risen over the past few years, consumers have gotten stingy, and they've, they've decided to churn. Australia now has the highest churn rates in the world. Origin and its peers are spending a fortune to capture and keep customers. Margins are falling. Competition is rising. And because they have to put more money into collecting customers, the capital intensity is actually increasing. So you've got an LNG business that looks quite stable and generating reasonable rates of return and high cash flow, and you've got a retail business that is arguably disrupted and where margins are falling and, and um, competition rising. They've, they've mashed those two businesses together, and I would argue that shareholders who want to own an LNG business don't want to own a declining re energy retailer, and shareholders who are interested in a turnaround or some sort of um, action in, in energy don't want to own a, a, um, a commodity-exposed LNG producer. So you've got a business that doesn't really satisfy a single group of shareholders. I think it's arguably mispriced and always will be until they solve the structural issue, and that is solved by a breakup. And just quickly, how do you go about valuing these businesses on some sort of asset base or cash flow? Yeah, so I think um, with the energy retail business, um, 
a cash flow multiple is probably the best way to go. So it generates about um, $2 billion. And I think you can put it on, you know, somewhere between six and eight times. So maybe around, um, you know, sort of $15 billion is probably the way it is in, is in the ballpark of valuation. And for the LNG business, um, it's a mixture of an asset based. And so I use, I use cash flow. So I, I assume like a, a $1 billion um, cash flow annuity of a, a long period of time, but then I also check that against what the asset base is worth and what the replacement cost of these assets might be, and I end up with about $10 billion. So uh, there's a lot of debt in this structure as well. So it's about $14 a share, I think, in, in raw um, EV, in enterprise value with the debt. You take out the debt, and it's pretty hard to get less than $10 a share of value here, and it's trading about $7. So it's a smallish um, low risk upside here, but I, I think you'll only realize that value really if, if someone comes in and separates those two businesses. It's been trading at a discount for years and years and years, and I, I don't see why that will change. Do you know why there hasn't been activity already when there's so many hedge fund managers and private equity and the like trying to get these bankers, trying to get these deals done? Yeah, I, I, that's a really curious question because I would have thought in particular, um, it looks like a classic um, uh, PE play the problem is it's already geared up so much. There's so much debt. Yeah. And so PE generally don't want to lay down billions and billions of their own money. They want to gear up and that gearing opportunity isn't available at the moment. Curiously, Origin is actually repaying debt at a rapid pace. And I reckon in maybe two or three years, debt would be almost fully paid off. And that might be the opportunity for private equity to come in. Okay, this is a bit of a segue question, but can you talk about how the oil price impacts the business? in a very complicated manner. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're here. Yeah, so the oil price and LNG price have a cozy and complicated relationship. Um, now, oil is a transport fuel. LNG is a generation fuel. It's used to generate electricity. So there's no real theoretical link between the two. But it used to be the case in the 80s and 90s that Japan was the largest and sometimes only buyer of LNG. And so they just randomly picked out the oil price um, as a linkage tool. And um, and that linkage has persisted all over the world. They call it Japanese crude cocktail. <laughs> JCC <laughs> price, it's called. And, um, and every LNG producer in the world now um, references their prices based on oil prices. But it's not just a flat linear relationship. It's, it's a bit like an S-curve. So as oil prices get really high or really low, um, the LNG price stabilizes. So there's a bit like a floor and a ceiling to the LNG price. And in the middle, you do get some oil price exposure. So it's a, it's actually not a bad way to price um, LNG. It's changing, however, as America becomes a bigger LNG exporter, they are changing the way this thing is priced. And I think in five or 10 years, you'll find that LNG has its own market independent of the oil price. So another question from our listeners, where should the long-term price of oil be and is it under threat from the advancement of electric vehicles? Yeah, I don't know what the long-term price of oil be. I think the, the best um, the best guesstimator would be looking at the marginal cost of production. And at the moment, I reckon around 70 bucks sounds about right to me. But that's a moving target. And, you know, last year it was probably a bit lower. In five years' time it might change. Uh, for me, I think that makes a bit of sense, about $70. Um, EVs are a, a problem, um, but not really today. Demand for oil is still increasing pretty much the same as it has been um, for, for decades and decades. Um, 
And for me, I mean, I look at the sale of EVs and they're still tiny, they're growing fast, but only in very specific markets and only where those markets introduce heavy government intervention subsidies to pay for the EV. Um, I think it is a threat and I, I think, you know, the risk of oil going to $200 is probably not going to happen anymore. But I'm, I'm not that concerned about EVs in the next 10 years, say. I, I'm not sure that's, um, that's the real big threat. What we really need to think about is shale in the US and that's what's really shaken up the oil market. It used to be that Saudi Arabia and conventional you know, sort of sandstone, limestone reservoirs accounted for most of the world's oil production, but all of a sudden the Americans found a way to get oil out of really tight shale formations um, and they're getting a lot of it out and the costs of doing that are coming down all the time. So America has gone from being a net importer of oil to a huge exporter of oil. They're self-sufficient and there's the glut of um, oil production because of the American um, advancement. I don't have the figures with me, but I think people would be quite amazed at just how small the component of oil usage is by vehicles alone. I, I can't remember, I don't know if it's 30% or 40%, yeah. which obviously is a big number, but it's not 100% or, you know, it's not 85 or 90, which I think most people would probably think. Yeah, you're right. I think the last time I saw it, about 40% is, is, by, um, is, is for cars and transport. And the rest goes into, so there's a big whack of all that goes into chemicals and plastics. And also there are still parts of the world that use oil as a generation fuel to, to power um, electricity, and I think that's a really inefficient use of oil, but it happens. And one argument for the bull cases for the continued use of oil is that in emerging countries, they're not some of them, particularly South America, for example, where they're going to use more cars, they can't afford to buy Teslas, yeah. so they're going to continue that incremental increase in demand for oil for petrol. Yeah, so the, the latest numbers I saw was that EVs to manufacture cost at minimum 30% higher, but on average, probably twice the price of a conventional vehicle. Um, but that's not even the big expense. If that was the only expense, I think that could be borne. It's really the infrastructure expense. We've got a whole, every country in the world has um, fueling stations and um, uh, the way their infrastructure is set up, it's, it's so cars can travel in a certain range. The electricity infrastructure isn't there. The recharging infrastructure isn't there. That all has to be built and that's trillions of dollars worth of investment that most countries can't afford and at best will take decades to complete. And without that investment in infrastructure, it's the case for EVs, I think, is relatively weak. Going back, um, I'm guessing probably 18 months, two years, maybe the US shale sector came under enormous financial pressure because just the amount of investment that was made and the amount of debt they'd taken on to make to drill more holes, essentially, yeah. uh, really just all crashed down when the oil price succumbed. And the banks didn't really want to get involved because I think they tried to hold on to hold these businesses up mm. because the last thing they wanted to do was just see these bad debts. They seem to have got through that now. And I was just wondering, I don't know whether you know much about this dynamic, but are the companies now producing more cash flow to essentially be able to pay for that debt they've taken on? Are banks going to be less likely to fund these expansions in future? Does that mean there's going to be more US shale or less? Um, we always talked about how shale has a fairly limited lifespan compared to conventional oil sources. Mm. How do these things all roll together? Yeah, it's important to understand the economics of shale and how it differs from a conventional well. So again, in a conventional oil well, you, you, you punch a hole and it takes time for that well to ramp up. So um, your expenses in, a, in an offshore well might be $100 million per well 
And then your payback period might be seven years or eight years, but your life expectancy for that well might be two decades. And after you've punched that hell well, there's not much more expenditure and you sort of sit back and collect the cash flow. Um, in, in the shale, it almost works as an inversion. With the shale, it costs maybe $2 million to punch a well. Your payback period might be a couple of weeks or months because you get a very high initial burst of output. And within one year, that will decline by 80%. So you have very fast decline rates, which means you have to then drill again and drill again and drill again to have any sort of resource. Otherwise, you're just a, a declining um, a de declining business. And, and so... Uh, shale is actually uh, quite capital intensive. It requires a lot of OPEX to continually drill all the time. Um, and the emergence of shale, I don't think uncoincidentally, has coincided with very low interest rates. Um, and I think the interest rate scenario is really important in sustaining the shale boom because these companies, as you say, have taken a lot of debt. I'm still not aware of any shale producer, not a single one, that is cash flow positive so they're they're drilling a lot and they're producing a lot but they're doing that by selling property to one another and by taking on a lot of debt and they're meeting um principal and interest repayments because these wells do generate cash flow but they're not actually reducing the the debt in the in the shale system and that keeps on climbing and it's aided by this very cheap liquidity that we have the disaster scenario for shale would just be if interest rates start to increase i think that would precipitate a big shake out of that sector. But absent that, there is no reason why this can't continue for a very long time. Back to the questions. How are you thinking about the ALP carbon slash energy policy, which has all the hallmarks of being made up as it is going along with respect to resources companies who I would have thought of would be the largest polluters? Yeah, I'm not really sure what, what that question is referring to, but um, most miners um, in their plans, so... BHP, Rio, any minor of consequence really has embedded in their cost assumptions a price for carbon. So there, and there's um, jurisdictions around the world that already price carbon. So there's reference prices you can plug into models, and all major miners already do that. So if it were to happen here, miners would probably be the best prepared out of any company because they're global operations and. This has been well flagged. So I, I don't anticipate any concern from the mining industry. In fact, most miners have been calling for it so they can just get it out of the way and, and, and know what's happening and get rid of the uncertainty. You know it's going to be a problem when you've got that situation happening. <laughs> uh, another question uh, from Mark. Is West Farmer's purchase of Kidman resources to gain access into electric vehicles a good move for West Farmer's shareholders? Yeah, this is something we've discussed in the office as well. When West Farmer's bid for Linus, I was shocked <laughs> but i had a look at linus and i wrote it up on intelligent investor so you can have a read of that review but i was quite impressed by what i saw actually there's i i always wrote off linus as a disaster and uh and a dream stock but when i actually looked into it this is a pretty good business and um if they can sort out the regulation there is a lot of profit to be made rare earths is only linus is the only rare earths miner outside of china it's a strategic resource and uh, it's a very profitable business if it works. Not sure that all translates to Kidman. Kidman is a um, lithium producer, and there are several ways to make lithium. Uh, Kidman focuses on spodumene, which is a hard rock, so it's a conventional mining operation, which then has a processing element attached to it. But mining is a big part of the process. 
with Linus, it's a big chemistry set where mining is a very small part of the process. It's a chemicals business. Kidman is a conventional mining business. But they're competing with a whole lot of South American lithium producers that use evaporation ponds um, to generate lithium, and that's a very cheap way of doing it. Uh, so there's a lot more competition for lithium. I'm not that interested in lithium as a sector. You know, For me, lithium is a bet on technology. It's not a mining business. It's a technology. And um, what you're saying is that you're buying a lithium producer. You're, you're saying you're betting that electric cars are going to be the future number one. You're betting that lithium-powered batteries are going to power electric cars. And number and number three, you're betting that the, the commodity producer is the one that's going to capture a decent share of the profit of the value chain. They're three very big bets to take. Um, and I'm not convinced that either of those bets is right. Um, you know, there's lots of alternatives to lithium batteries. Commodity producers generally don't capture the value um, in, the, in, a, in a value chain. And there's lots of lithium lying around. So uh, I, for me, um, I'm really disappointed in this move. It, it seems to me West Farmers has found a narrative and they're looking for investments to fill that narrative and perhaps to go sell it to the market. It's, it, I really admire West Farmers and I was impressed by the Linus move, not so much by this one. The best I can say is that these aren't huge bites for the size of West Farmers, yeah. but yeah. I just worry that once a CEO gets a taste I know. of doing deals or clearly <laughs> wants to do deals, you just never know when the next big bad one's going to be made. And it shows a bad characteristic, which is I'm chasing a story and not really building value. And um, it's, it's one of the worst characteristics of management, you know, this, this narrative building. Yeah, I think particularly given West Farmers has probably failed uh, with the Bunnings copycat in the UK and blew up a lot of money. I don't know how patient they were about trying to spend the money they had to make an acquisition, but uh, I just would have thought they should have known better than to blow up that money that quickly. Well, at least um, if they're going to commit to that much money, I was surprised they withdrew so quickly. You know, I, I would have thought they would have stuck it out for a little bit. They know something about hardware. <laughs> <laughs> the ALP East Coast gas policy, and I've been kind calling it policy, it looks problematic and vague. How are you thinking about the ALP's approach to East Coast gas producers? Um, look, it, on the list of things to worry about for gas producers, you know, I'm not sure it matters all that much. The, the gas producers of significance along the East Coast have their plans already. Um, gas is, uh, I mean, it's a pretty, uh, pretty decent national market. There are ways to get around this. Um, some East Coast um, consumers are already talking about, you know, uh, constructing LNG terminals and getting around. I just think, um, you know, Prices uh, are wonderful signals. When the price gets high enough, a solution will present itself. I, I don't think investors need to spend all this time thinking about the exact solution to every supply problem. Um, markets work. A high price will provides will be the solution to the high price. Um, and I don't know whether that will come from a political relief or a technology relief or a resource relief, but it, it'll something will sort itself out. I'm going to be really lazy and uh, get you to answer this last one as well because I'm pretty sure you covered Sydney airports there at some stage. If, I, if that's you... the one I missed there. You covered Sydney airports <laughs> for a long time, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, it was going up, so <laughs> why not? <laughs> why are airports mm. generally good investments aside from just when bought at the right price? You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know if you agree with this, Nathan, but not every airport in the world is a good asset. Mm. Sydney airport is definitely a good asset, but that's mm. because it's a monopoly asset. Um, so there's no, if you want to get into Sydney, I, I don't think you can use Bankstown Airport if you're coming in from China or from Asia. But um, 
It's not true of lots of European airports, for example, where they have lots of ways to get into that country. Um, but also it's unregulated. I think that's the key thing. Regulation um, determines returns in so many airports. And there are some airports around the world that have heavy regulation. There's some like Sydney that have light regulation. And the returns tell you the difference. <laughs> What do yeah, you reckon? Yeah, I agree. I think having that multi-domestic and international was yeah. a huge advantage for a start, uh, particularly for a destination as far away as what Australia is for, um, you know, any of the major continents. Apparently, Auckland Airport is is interesting because um, New Zealand um, has this policy of using Auckland as their primary funnel. So almost all international flights come straight into Auckland. In Australia, international flights are change between sort of Sydney, Brisbane, and Melbourne. And uh, I don't even know if they're flying international in Perth, but um, let's forget about that. It's on the other side of the world. Um, but Auckland is interesting because it's, it's, it's much more of a funnel than Sydney is. The regulation is quite favourable and they actually own all their land, unlike Sydney, which has 99-year leases, which sounds like a long time. But once you start modelling leases out, it actually knocks a huge chunk off your valuation to have a 99-year lease against a freehold piece of land. I think if you're going to think about where you'd like to own land, my guess is you'd want to own it close to one of the fastest growing um, metropolises in the world that's on a, on a very rich per capita basis. And like it's, what is it, a 15-minute train ride from s the middle of Sydney to the airport? Yeah. Like it's not that far away uh, as far as the crow flies. Yeah. And <laughs> Sydney land just goes up all the time. We've got population growth. Uh, great holiday destination right next to Asia. You know, like it just speaks for itself. And it's really unique in that way. Most airports are way out away from the CBD. Um, but this one, I can't think of too many cities that have the airport slap bang in the middle of the city. It's annoying if you, if you live anywhere near it, I suppose. Yeah, it's good for me because it's only two stops on the train to get to. Do you reckon the, the third, the, the second airport will provide much competition? Does I, that I don't know whether there? the analogy is exactly right, but... Um, just the other Melbourne uh, airport in Geelong, so yeah, yeah. Uh, the competition with Melbourne is just neither here nor there. And yeah. if you can afford it, there's no way you want to be going to the other airport. It's just it's uh, unless you live in that area. But obviously, that appeals to more regional people, and which is just a small amount of the travellers. Mm. And uh, it's just like you're not going to have the international um, people wanting to go there. And domestically, for most people in Sydney. You're going to be one of more be more centrally based, so I'm not even thinking of it as potential competition, but you know maybe it attracts some people who are really trying to save money on a on a to get to Asia on Scoot or something like that. And there's plenty of other airports in the world, like the mm. UK has Heathrow and yeah. Stanton, and um, the other one I can't think of two or three airports. Yeah, that's a, right. Sort of vague area, but you just don't want to fly into those ones if you don't have to. It's just just everything's harder. I heard one fund, one fund manager, fund manager I was talking to, um, he's done really well out of Sydney airports, and he was saying that um, it actually could be a beneficiary of a second airport because at the moment they're forced to have these low-yielding planes taking up really valuable landing slots. But if you take all those low-yielding planes and you shove them <laughs> up onto a second airport, it, you can actually increase your total yield. So the, the yield is, of course, the number of people coming through the airport. You can actually increase that by shoving the, the low-yielding planes into a secondary airport, it could actually be a beneficiary for them, and it's probably most likely going to be. Yeah, I, I can't sit here and say that Sydney Airport is cheap, but it's a core holding in our funds and mm. has been a core recommendation of Intelligent Investor for a long time because it's just a very good business. You get a decent yield. It's not going anywhere, and it's been very well run. 
last, uh, this is not a question from any of the listeners, but mm. I just wondering whether it's worth uh, just maybe recapping where BHP and Woodside are at the moment, given BHP at least is uh, usually a big holding for, for most people. Yeah, so um, we I think we upgraded BHP in the high 20s, saying that now's the time to take a nibble, and we kept on upgrading it all the way down to $14. Um, but, um, geez, it's, it, it, it's done remarkably well, and it's done well in a commodity price environment that has not been at all boomy. This is probably the first time I've ever seen um, cash flow and profits uh, at this level without... Um, commodity prices rising to peaky levels. So it's 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 been really disciplined, good management, and it's the first time that BHP's asset quality has really taken taken reins, rather than um, the boom bust cycle of the resources mm. business. And is the iron ore price not fairly well up there by historical standards at the moment? That's only happened quite recently. Um, this year basically has been um, boom time for iron ore, but but the previous four years where BHP is sort of two and a half times, but more than more than two bagged, um, the iron ore price has has not been all that high really. And remember, it's it's fallen from two hundred dollars a ton down to what is it like um, eighty ninety bucks a ton um, now, and and a year ago it was only sort of sixty bucks. So it's it's certainly not because of commodity prices. Um, you know, you mentioned that they found religion and. Um, it's remarkable. It makes you think, you know, if, if they were running the business this well for decades, you just wonder what would have happened. Um, I just I, wonder if they just had invested all that cash they'd blown up on different things like shale. Yeah. If they just had invested in the stock market. I think the, <laughs> the really important lesson here is, is that, um, you know, we used to think, I used to think anyway, that, that the important part of a, of a commodity business was the commodity price and the resource you had. I actually think the most important part is capital allocation. How, how do you spend all the cash that comes into your business and what kind of return do you get on that? And by tightening that up, that's made all the difference for these companies. Um, and I think there's, it doesn't look expensive is the thing. I mean, we're, we're not sitting here on record high commodity prices expecting a big cyclical funk. Um, commodity prices are very reasonable where they are. There's been almost zero investment in supply. There's not a big pipeline of supply coming through. So I think we can, I mean, I'm not expecting a big decline in commodity prices. And I think if you plug in spot prices where they are now, BHP is well over $50 a share. Now, we should never pay spot price for a resource company, always pay much less, and the market will pay much less. But it just shows that I, I don't think this is a business that's overvalued um, at about 40 bucks. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's, I mean, we'd be happy to hold it at 40. I think our sell is above 40 at the moment. I don't think people or investors give enough consideration to that capital allocation because yeah. if you have a CEO that's in charge of a business for, say, seven years, that's probably roughly – he's going to take enough or profit out of that business. It probably accounts for 50, maybe even 60 yeah. or 70% of the value of the entire business mm. in that seven years. And what he does with that is going to have a huge impact on what the value of that business is by the time he leaves and it's or an, she leaves. It's an underappreciated art. Every, everyone's focused on the same things. And I think we haven't really paid enough attention as an industry to capital allocation until now. And I think now there's like a laser type focus on capital allocation, almost maybe too much. I mean, there's almost a case that these companies are arguably underinvesting in their resource bases. and That was my next question. When is when are they going to lose religion? When are they going to have to start spending stuff? Yeah, so for me, South 32 looks as though it, ha it is actually underinvesting. They, they their capex is really low and they're paying really high dividends. They've got the best balance sheet in the in industry. 
but the reluctance to, to spend um, looks to me a problem. The other two, because they spent so much money um, over the last uh, decade or so, I think they're okay to milk their assets. This is BHP and Rio? Oh, yeah, sorry, BHP and Rio. They're, they're probably okay to milk their assets as it is. Um, and, and Fortescue is quite interesting. Fortescue has a real choice to make because they are now almost debt-free. They're generating stupendous levels of cash flow. It's their time. It's their test now. How are they going to spend that cash flow? They've never really had free cash flow before because they've always had huge piles of debt to service. So um, I'm interested to see what they do now. I think spoken to the CEO, she's kind of scared me a little bit by talking about all these projects internationally she wants to invest in, but relatively small sums of money. I mean, that's, that's a test the company has to pass. Just very quickly, how many more years do you think BHP can just continue paying out these sort of dividends, or do you think this is a more permanent change now? Yeah, it's, it's permanent until it's not. <laughs> <laughs> what we really need to see is a big boom. And, and what we're seeing now is not a big boom. Um, we need uh, it, Once we see big booming commodity prices and shareholders start pressuring the companies to grow again, that's when we'll see – that'll be the test of management's mettle. You know, do, they, um, do they tell shareholders, no, we know what's best, or do they, um, do they uh, follow what these silly demands? Rio Tinto – used to be the best managed mining company in the world. And for years during the great China boom, they told shareholders, you know what, we know how to manage this business. We're not going to go off and make silly acquisitions. And the pressure was too much. The board sacked management and they put in this new management with the mission to go and expand the company. And we all know how that ended. So there, there will be a test for them, but I don't think that test will come around until there's a big commodity boom. And your current view on Woodside? Yeah, so it's a hold at Intelligent Investor, but it's not far away from an upgrade. Um, what I really like about Woodside at the moment is that having spent years just pouring capital into all these processing facilities, and we're talking tens of billions of dollars, they now have um, a really effective and, and big fixed asset base um, with uh, that sort of declining um, reserves, with declining reserves. It's a really nice problem to have because reserves are quite easy to find. And in fact, they're changing their model a little bit from being a owner of gas and an owner of fixed assets to an owner of fixed assets that processes gas. And that's a really nice business model and it makes that company a lot less capital intensive. I expect over the next few years, you'll see much better returns on capital from that company. We're already seeing it. And they're paying, they have a payout ratio of about 80% and that looks entirely sustainable to me. Um, so this, even more so than the other miners, looks look as looks as though they can sustain um, big dividends uh, over a much longer period. And it looks like they're going to be able to get some investment help by other parties and some of their yeah. big investments too, which eases any pressure on the balance sheet. Yeah, this is something that they're really good at. Um, they have they have a really uh, unusually for a large business. They have a really good exploration and development bent. And they're really good at collaborating with partners, getting people on board, and then selling them stakes. And you know, uh, it's something they've done really well over the past. Other companies haven't been as good at doing that, and I'm especially looking at Santos and, and Origin. <laughs> but but Woodside has a great track record. Um, it's it's one. It's probably the best managed um, energy business, certainly in Australia, and, and one of the best in the world. Gaurav, I just want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, the discussion has been brilliant and 100 times better than anything I was going to be able to serve up. So thank you very much. <laughs> Pleasure, Nathan, anytime. 
Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, having Gaurav on today. Uh, we probably won't be covering resources until we get him on again, but I hope that's a fairly comprehensive and exhaustive look uh, at the, at least the big resources and energy companies in Australia. As always, you can send your questions into Skin in the Game, or one word, at investmart.com.au, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the income, growth, and small companies funds, head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investmart.com.au.